On the evening of August 23rd, 1572, the eve of St. Bartholomew's Day, a group of Swiss mercenaries under the orders from Catherine de' Medici, mother to the Catholic King of France, Charles IX, stormed into the chambers of Protestant leader Gaspard de Coligny. Coligny had just survived an assassination attempt days earlier and greeted death calmly, saying, I see clearly that which they seek, and I am ready steadfastly to suffer that death which I have never feared and for which a long time past I have pictured myself. Coligny dismissed his retinue, who escaped over the roofs, and the Swiss mercs poured into his chambers. One of the Swiss would later remark they, quote, never saw anyone less afraid in so great peril, nor die more steadfastly. Then a mercenary plunged his sword into Coligny's gut, and then again into his open mouth. The body was thrown from a window into the courtyard below for identification. According to contemporary French author Dethau later, quote, as some children were in the act of throwing the body into the river, it was dragged out and placed upon the gibbet of Montfouchon, where it hung by the feet in chains of iron, and then they built a fire underneath, by which he was burned without being consumed, so that he was, so to speak, tortured with all the elements, since he was killed upon the earth, thrown into the water, placed upon the fire, and finally put to hang in the air. This was the beginning of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, a three-day orgy of mob violence in Paris and the French countryside against the French Calvinists, known as the Huguenots. Royal officials and common citizens alike dragged Protestants, including women and children, from their house, chained streets so there would be no escape, piled bodies high in carts, and simply threw them into the River Seine. As many as 4,000 were killed in Paris, and potentially many thousands more in the provinces. In the second half of the 16th century, the bomb set off by Luther continued to destabilize and disfigure the political landscape of the European continent. And the central conflict we saw in Germany last week plays out again in other major states. The tension between centralizing dynasties under newly powerful kings and resistant nexuses of local power, often organized around the Protestant faith, and now often not around Lutheranism, but the ascendant Calvinist strain of Protestantism. In France, it's the Valois versus the Huguenot. The Spanish Habsburgs will fight for control of the Protestant Netherlands. In Britain and Scandinavia, Protestantism will be the tool of the centralizing dynasty. The failure of the Pope and the Habsburgs to contain or roll back the tide of church reform meant that dynastic houses outside of the empire were able to direct this unleashed force of social change to their own advantage. By the end of the 16th century, the Protestant princes of the Holy Roman Empire were forging political alliances with Protestant kings and queens across Northern Europe to neutralize Catholic power on the continent, embodied by the Spanish and German Habsburgs. The long-term goal, according to Protestant propaganda, was the total reformation of Christendom and the advent of the kingdom of heaven on earth. That didn't happen, (laughs) Uh, but it did create a system of ideologically and materially aligned diplomatic and religious alliance blocks that would bring a scale of violence to Europe that created a hell on earth instead.
As Germany settled into an uneasy religious peace under the Habsburgs, the same struggles fought out there in the 1540s and 50s took hold in neighboring kingdoms. But while Charles V was mostly struggling with Lutheran princes, that was now the old shit. The new shit Protestantism spreading outside the Holy Roman Empire, at least on continental Europe, would increasingly be Calvinism. From France to the Low Countries and up into Scotland and then back into Poland, Bohemia, and other German lands, the Reformed Church of Calvinism began taking hold. So Matt, what is behind the spread and attractiveness of Calvinism versus Lutheranism? So Luther's project had been to create a vernacular relationship with the word of God, right? Yes. And that that meant in German, but by definition, that would mean a vernacular church in the rest of the continent. So while the Reformation first reaches France in the form of French translation of Luther's writings in the 1520s, and the message spreads quickly to cities that were discontented with overweening royal authority and economic instability. Right. But still, this early strain of Luther-inflected critique of the church uh, was sort of limited in its impact. It did get aristocratic support uh, coalescing around the person of Marguerite of Navarre, a member of the Valois ruling dynasty. Now, the crown was slow to pick a fight over religious innovation until 1534, with the public posting of a placard titled, True Articles on the Horrible, Great, and Insupportable Abuses of the Papal Mass. Just another one of these titles that really just gives a spoiler alert, you know? Yeah, it just really drops, throws it out there for you. Like, yep. uh, you literally could judge these books by their cover. <laughs> In Paris, uh, spurred a crackdown. Hundreds were arrested and six reformers burned at the stake. Now, this motivated the first of what would eventually be hundreds of thousands of religious refugees to flee France over the coming century. And one of these first pilgrims was a minor figure from Marguerite of Navarre's court, Jean Calvin. Jean Calvin. Uh, who is going to introduce a vernacular French Protestantism uh, to Western Europe. After Calvin had established himself as the head of a quasi-theocracy in Geneva, we talked about that in the episode about Luther, right. French-language editions poured out of refugee printing presses in the city. Sophisticated networks of credit allowed the books to be transported to and sold in shops in France and the Spanish Netherlands. Calvinist theology, which emphasized community church control and rejected the sacraments as unbiblical superstition, found an eager response in many French and Dutch cities. But the single most powerful Calvinist weapon in the war for souls was the Genevan Psalter. First published in 1539, the Psalter was a hymnal verse translations of biblical psalms set to music, and it allowed Protestant communities across France and the Low Countries to literally sing from the same book. A music-based Protestant popular culture sprang up around the Psalter. Public hymn singing was a bold affirmation of faith with infectious melodies that transmitted the evangelical gospel to the unlettered and skeptical. The musical vocabulary provided by the Psalter helped create a vibrant culture of affirmation and resistance that powered the Reformed Church movement. When French and Dutch Protestants went to die in battle or at the stake in their struggle against Catholic counter-reformers, they went singing the hymns of the Genevan Psalter. Which is a fascinating corollary to the information revolution we saw with Luther in the printing press in episode one. It's like, it's not just the creation of a news and information market, but that thing that's always downstream from mass media, popular culture. Yes. And it's funny to think of pop culture 
in the sense of like a 16th century religious hymns, but that's just one of the engines that's driving this movement that's so keenly about taking control back for common folk. Right, because there is a popular culture in the pre-Reformation Europe, and Mm -hmm. it's around the same things we imagine popular culture to be now. Music, performance, public drama and comedy, all of that existed, but it was all structured around the festival life of the church. Right. Now it is being democratized. Mm-hmm. And so we've got Calvinism going as this specific ideological wrench in the machinery of centralizing dynasties. What we'd like to do then is kind of go around the horn, so to speak, and look at how all these royal houses are functioning in the main states of Europe, starting here in France. <laughs> the Valois dynasty had reigned in France since the mid-1200s. They had fought the Hundred Years' War against England, successfully expelling the English from the continent once and for all, and in the process, solidifying their own dynastic control over France. So in the late 1400s and early 1500s, the Valois king Charles VIII attempted to press his claims for control of Naples, resulting in the Italian Wars that eventually brought the French into conflict with Charles V. Habsburg, uh, which we talked about last episode. The Valois go on to effectively lose this conflict, sacrificing any small losses they made on the Italian peninsula for minor gains on the German frontier. Uh, this is the freaking Alsace region they're Al- going to be fighting over the, forever. There's a lot going on there. Uh, we won't talk about most of it, but just imagine, while everything else is happening, people are just running back and forth through Alsace, just r- just ripping shit. <laughs> I just imagine, like, if you lived in, like, like, if your family has lived in Metz, you've been both German and French, like, so 30 times. times over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Starting in 1559, the uh, the Valois took a series of huge dynastic L's that put the line into terminal decline. That year, King Henry II dies in a brutal jousting accident. A huge lance splinter goes through his helmet, piercing his eye and brain. Very, very gnarly. And as predicted by Nostradamus. How, how so? The lion, uh, he had a quatrain about uh, the lo- young lion's uh, eyes in a cage being put out. Wow. Yeah. You can't argue with that. I guess not. I don't really know. I know that people like to obsess over over Nostradamus, but I don't really know his old deal. All I know is that when I was a kid, I watched many times the Orson Welles narrated uh, documentary about him, The Man Who Saw for Tomorrow or whatever. It's great. (laughs) So Henry II's young son, Francis II, succeeds him, then dies less than 18 months later, severing his wife, Mary, Queen of Scots, and her family, the Catholic House of Guise, from claims to the throne. Francis is succeeded by his younger brother, Charles IX, with their powerful mother, Catherine de' Medici, as hey, regent. Hey, she's <laughs> ruling here. And hey. yes, she is one of those de' Medici's, yes. the Florentine banking uh, p- family that uh, was also very powerful during this period. Hey, I sit on the throne. Hey. My, my old little boy, he go on the throne. Yes. And this reminds you that these dynastic rules uh, really do cross many national boundaries and, and are composite of different areas, yes. geographically, culturally, and linguistically. And like the Medicis obviously rule Florence, but the Medicis will be popes yeah. and, and yep. stuff. It's, it's Again, we mentioned in the first episode, 300 families. Yeah, and it's all about getting everything. them all places uh, in as high and as important as possible throughout every institution uh, and, yes, dynastic uh, family tree that Europe had to offer. So this sets up a three-way battle for control of the French throne between the moderate Catholic Valois, the uber-Catholic Catholic League led by the Guise, and the Protestant Huguenot. The English Plantagenet dynasty had collapsed the factional infighting over control of an ineffectual monarchy. Uh, when their French military efforts started stalling out. 
Now, a hundred years later, the Malois face a similar crisis after failing to secure their dynastic claims in Italy. Influence over a throne held by miners, regents, and weaklings fought over by factions of the ruling dynasty. In this case, the Guy and the uh, Huguenot Montmorency family. Sorry about our French Yeah, we're going to be bad. That's okay. You get, Fine. You can get what we're saying. Look, we are fat and we love burger. We admit it. <laughs> but thanks to the Reformation, this conflict over the throne was wedded to a religious conflict over the question of salvation. As such, the French wars of religion were marked by a level of savage communal violence that simple dynastic struggles rarely attained. The opening salvo of the war was the massacre of Vassy in 1562, when Guy troops set upon a gathering of 500 psalm-singing Huguenot worshippers, killing 50. Neighbors fell upon one another in spasms of mass bloodshed. Thousands starved in protracted sieges. The violence was brutal but cyclical. Peace treaties between the crown and Huguenot leaders were signed in 1563, 1568, 1570, 1576, and 1577 in what amounted to a protracted negotiation on the question of Protestant rights in the kingdom. There were too many townsmen and powerful nobles wedded to the Huguenot cause for Protestantism to be wiped out. But the Guy and their supporters, especially the fervently Catholic citizens of Paris, refused to allow heresy to spread unchecked on French soil. Eventually, the war solidified into a three-way struggle known as the War of the Three Henrys. Three Henrys. Three damn Henrys. Too many Henrys. Or should we say Henri? Henri. This is really Henri. Trois Henri. Yes, the Trois Henrys. Between Henry III, Catherine Medici's fourth son, the King of France, uh, who was supported by a faction of moderate Catholic nobles, derisively known as politiques. Politiques. Uh, these are the uh, people who he- held to the Gallic model of Catholicism that has sort of built itself around the Avignon papacy. Period. Right, right, right. That's basically said that the French were able to decide on their own what constituted the best interest of Catholic- the Catholic Church and Christendom mm-hmm. uh, and did not really have to submit themselves to Rome in any sense which made them free to operate from a sense of realpolitik mm-hmm. that other ruling dynasties felt uh, basically forbidden to follow. I mean, this is the difference between the uh, Charles V Habsburg, who is a defender of papal Catholicism. Exactly. And the, the French royal family, which, as we said earlier, allies with the freaking godless infidel Turks yes. to fight the Habsburgs. So this is a strong tradition that is now holding up uh, Catherine Medici and her failed son. Uh, then you've got Henry of Navarre, relative of the Marguerite we talked to, right. uh, of the Bourbon dynasty, which is a cadet branch of the broader uh, mm-hmm. Valois dynasty, uh, and champion of the Huguenots. And then we got Henry of Lorraine, the Duke of Guy, the uber-Catholic head of the Catholic League and close ally to Habsburg, Spain. Uh, so Henry III tried in vain to triangulate between the Huguenot and the Protestant forces while also keeping his powerful and overbearing mother at arm's length. <laughs> but he was one of your classic royal oafs who tend to spring up near the end of a dynastic cycle of power. We talk about these wars of religion. One of the things that you're seeing as an important development is kind of the democratization of violence. Yes. Uh, whereas previously, like there were always these dynastic struggles, but you'd have a, a dynasty that could afford it, that raised some knights and those knights would find some professionalized troops and then they'd go off and fight an organized battle. And then one would win and one would right. be defeated. Whereas now you're seeing that this is not a war between pe- like two families that are fighting dynastic conflict. It is a war of people against people because, because of the religious element. And it is because there is now a motivation, right? 
because there are no when when the the lords are fighting over territory or feudal rights, there are no souls at risk. Right, everyone's a Christian. Everyone who dies will will face their reward. Yes, uh, but in this new environment where it, the the question of saving your soul and your family soul is on you, it is no longer abstracted to an institution. Even if you're Catholic, you have to do it yourself because you're. Imagining your belief system literally being under attack, under attack by these people that the king refuses to stop. Yes, so it becomes your incumbent moral and religious duty to defend this position, which of course is tied to a dynastic struggle for power and rights. Mm-hmm. But it now is invested with a popular belief, centering and motivating horrifyingly violent action. And on top of that, you're welding not just the religious beliefs, but a growing sense of ideological organizations around these things are also like a national project. Like will France be Protestant? Will France be Catholic? What type of Catholic? And how does that affect me as a Frenchman? And of course, both sides, the the Protestant and the Catholic conspire without knowing to, to keep it going this way uh, and to keep engaging along this axis because uh, otherwise, in this period, which we're talking about, is one of deep social crisis, mm-hmm. and is a crisis that's only going to accelerate over the years uh, as climate kicks in and, and, and other exogenous shocks we'll get start, to that. start piling up. And that crisis was going to be expressed socially somehow, and this the providential arrival of the Reformation allows it to be expressed communally against a religious other rather than collectively experienced by a, a exploited peasantry right. or even towns people the burgers uh as a as a oppression by a class enemy from above right a ruling elite conspiring to to deny us rights uh and that that possibility expressed briefly in the uh german peasants revolt of 1525 is effectively extinguished at that point right and now all of this energy is going to be kind of fruitlessly directed in this communal violence against those poor psalter singers yep yep So let's get back to the uh, the three Henrys. Yes. Uh, so obviously all that dynastic stuff is some real Game of Thrones shit. Indeed. Uh, Catherine de Medici is pulling the strings as regent over her succession of three dipshit sons. She's compromising and scheming to keep the Valois around to fight one more day and uh, eventually overseeing the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Um, though her actual amount of direct supervision is still debated on that. It's like with Richard III and the the, the brothers in or the princes in the tower. Yeah. Like we don't really know. She was certainly in the control position when it happened. Yeah. Whether or not she actually said do it. Yeah, exactly. In the uh, Palpatine voice. When did do she it. when did she know? Did she order when did she uh, say uh, execute order 66? Yes, exactly. As the Catholic League took control of Paris in 1588 at the height of their power during the Henry War, Henry III, breaking free of his mother's influence, summoned Henry of Guise to his chambers and had him assassinated by the king's personal guard. Catherine is shocked by her son's move, and she dies shortly after, telling her son that his recklessness will be his ruin. Eight months later, Henry III and Henry of Navarre had allied to overthrow the Catholic League. On the eve of their planned assault to retake Paris, a fanatical Dominican friar was able to con his way into Henry III's presence with the promise of important information. There, the friar fatally stabbed Henry III in revenge for his assassination of Henry de Guise. Boom. Henry Valois commands his men to follow Henry Navarre, and soon the Bourbons control France. So you got to rush through this stuff. 
we're still trying to get to the 30 years war down the line, but that's basically like a whole season of CW's reign in a paragraph. A lot of interesting stuff in France in this era. Don't really have time to get into it. I mean, can't even really talk about Catherine de Medici's famous flying squadron of young lady courtesan sex spies. Yeah, too bad. Uh, certainly interesting. Maybe somebody should make a show about that or yeah, something. Seriously. But Matt, maybe you can tell us a bit about the material analysis of the uh, French wars of religion. So these wars are an interdynastic struggle for control of a growing state apparatus. We have an economic battle between urban and land-based regimes of power. We got a geographical contest between the South where old Roman-based trade networks had survived the collapse of the empire and the North where a more complete and catastrophic fall of Rome had led to the rise of an overweening military aristocracy. And they ended not with an overwhelming triumph by one side over the other, but by a general sigh of exhaustion. Mm Mm-hmm. The Protestant Henry of Navarre converted to Catholicism for a second time, <laughs> and with the Valois line extinguished, was able to gain the support of not only the Huguenot nobility, but the majority of moderate Catholics as well. The peace was sealed by Henry's pronouncement of the Edict of Nantes in the 1598. Edict Nantes. The Edict of Nantes. We'll put that. Remember, another air horns yeah. for every one of these. For, yeah, for anything. Edict of Nantes is a big one. Yeah, yeah. This is a big boy. In 1598, which gave Protestant communities broad freedom to worship within an otherwise holy Catholic France. Religious fanaticism had proved a potent weapon for the Catholic League. It motivated people to take up arms and slaughter their neighbors and gave strength to the pious population of parents of Paris during its long and deadly siege. Parisians ate dog and rat meat while listening to sermons that, according to one observer, said that it is better to kill one's own children if you didn't have anything to feed them with than to receive a heretic king. Heavy, heavy, intense stuff. But in the long run, the League's intransigence proved to be its undoing. Killing Henry III had only led to the crowning of an ex-Protestant king, in large part because the League's choice of king, who they offered the crown to and whose troops helped defend Paris during the siege, was Philip II of Spain. (laughs) No amount of appealing to religious piety could persuade the center of gravity of the French nobility to surrender France to the control of their greatest continental rival. So then, Philip... The second of Spain was born in May 1527. He was the son of Charles V Habsburg and his cousin, Isabella of Portugal. Philip was raised almost entirely in Spain. And for as much as his father had been an itinerant emperor, Philip would be a very Spanish king. The personification of the Spanish side of the Habsburg lineage. He was a serious and studious boy, and by age 16 in 1543, he was acting as regent of the Spanish kingdoms, administering territory from Milan to Peru. Though presiding over a Spanish golden age in art, culture, and theoretical global influence, Philip's Spanish kingdom was rife with financial difficulties and internal tensions, stemming from several devolved regional noble courts contained within the single Spanish polity. So Philip ruled a globe-spanning imperial machine, the monumental wealth of which paradoxically weakened the heart of the empire. Silver from the slave mines of the New World flowed into China in exchange for spices and back into Europe. Bankers in the northern Italian city of Genoa provided Philip with the crucial loans needed to fuel his war machine, a war machine staffed by mercenaries from across the empire. But all that wealth served to hollow out the Spanish economy. The huge influx of silver helped trigger a price revolution in Europe. The economy moved from barter to monetary transactions with a constant upward inflation defining the entire century. In less developed parts of Europe, like Spain itself, this monetized economy left many peasants deeply indebted to pay for the possessions of life. 
The nobility of Spain dealt with the resulting stagnation in agricultural production by reimposing feudal obligations through the mechanism of taxation. The process of urbanization that powered so much of the growth around Europe was interrupted, as those who could leave the land sought their fortunes in the army or the colonies, rather than in the gilded but gloomy cities of Spain. This dynamic of an imperial periphery working frantically to extract wealth, borrow money, and wage war on behalf of a steadily weakening center would drive Philip II to ever more extreme attempts to stave off financial collapse by enforcing Habsburg dominance on the continent. So the monetary stuff is always a little hard for me to wrap my head around just yeah. because... Uh, me too. It, it's it, not a strength, yeah, econo- Don't hurt me. Yes, uh, it, it doesn't seem. But I, I guess the clearest way that I can think about it is that they're, they're just not developing any business or industry in any sense they're that we would They're not doing see. the internal they're just, investment. They're literally just pulling the money, is pouring, money out of the ground. The money is pouring through Spain. Yeah. It's building a military infrastructure, and it's building uh, banking empires that are... Uh, intercontinental in scope yes. they're not particular spanish possessions like the industries in the cities of europe are and these the cities of spain did not develop the uh the craft industry that happened elsewhere and i think we mentioned it later on but maybe i can bring it up here is that yeah at certain points during philip's rule the silver would not even touch spain it would just go straight to the be- to repay low continental loans in the bankers and, it, and this is inevitable for two reasons one is as we said, uh, the stagnation in the in agriculture required a re-feudalization, mm-hmm. which meant less peasant mobility. Right. And peasant mobility is a big way that you get urbanization in the first place. And and the people and the second part is that even the people who can move are much more incentivized to go try their hand in the new world, right? Or in the mercenary army than to go and. Uh, scratch it out in a economically stagnant city in spain yeah because when you're just one of a few hundred spanish guys in the new world there's a lot more social mobility Mm -hmm. so as with his father philip considered himself by both belief and by title and dynastic obligation to be the defender of catholicism in christian europe he said of this obligation rather than suffer the least injury to religion in the service of god i would lose all my states and a hundred lives if i had them for I do not intend to rule over heretics. And to the AEIOU, Austria is destined to rule the world Habsburg motto, he would add, the world is not enough. Boom, boom, boom. Emphasizing the spiritual gains to be had in the heavenly kingdom. I cannot just conquer the world. I nope. must conquer heaven as well. Indeed. Storm the heavens. Philip would take this conviction to brutal ends, overseeing the persecution and murder of Protestants everywhere from England to a Huguenot colony in Florida. He even entertained plans to use the Philippines as a staging ground for the subjugation and conversion to Catholicism of China. The whole thing. (laughs) His religious obligations would shape his ruling style, though they, of course, rather conveniently mirrored his dynastic aspirations. (laughs) Weird. uh, Which is a great way to transition to the Dutch. Boom. Because by the late 16th century, the Dutch counties of the Low Countries, and here's where Belgium and the Netherlands start becoming two different things, which always kind of struck me as overly complicated and unnecessary. One Bella Lux, please. Blame the 12 years truce. Yes. Uh, the Dutch counties had started going 
heavily Calvinist, which tracks, as we've been laying out since the Low Countries had developed, more urban, more trade and industry-centered social structures going back generations. So the Low Countries were the most urbanized part of a rapidly urbanizing continent. Now, this has been true since the activist reign of the Dukes of Burgundy, who ruled there before the lands were absorbed into the Habsburg dominions after the death of Charles the Bold. The Dukes had invested heavily in the culture of conspicuous consumption that marked soft power during the rise of the Renaissance dynasties. That consumption required bringing together skilled laborers to produce opulent clothing, furniture, luxury foodstuffs, mechanical curiosities, all that the grasping noble houses purchased in a frenzied arms race of opulence, with a sumptuous court as crucial to securing legitimacy and dynastic advancement as battlefield victories were. This trend only accelerated when a Burgundian-born Habsburg became king of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor. By the mid-16th century, Flemish and French-speaking urban artisans produced enough export goods, chiefly among them finely turned textiles made from imported English wool, that the Dutch cities were able to feed themselves with bulk grain purchased from the vast feudal estates of Eastern Europe and shipped west across the Baltic. They used all their farmland to just grow tools. Exactly. That meant that the low countries weren't dependent on the produce of local agricultural land, which could instead be put to growing necessary ingredients for trade goods. This cycle of intensifying urbanization and specialization created the most advanced literate commercial culture in Europe, which very quickly assimilated Calvinist theological abstractions into the greater project of a burgeoning class consciousness and political mobilization. I should add here that uh, not just the opulence of the courts, but the uh, geographic positioning. The Low Countries are one of the key entrepots for trade into right. Europe. They, they, they hold a key position uh, in the riverine networks that connect all of internal uh, Europe to one another. Right. The prosperous burghers of the Low Countries, which we call them, right, because mm-hmm. they're very, very low. This is the swamp Germans we're talking right, about. Right, exactly. They have to have all those dikes to keep the water out. Right, and they're able to just move stuff throughout Europe mm-hmm. like blood through capillaries. So these prosperous burghers increasingly saw Spanish rule with its stiff adherence to Catholic orthodoxy, bureaucratic meddling in provincial affairs, and heavy tax burden as an increasingly burdensome hindrance to the development of Dutch capital and therefore, of course, the salvation Salvation. of Dutch souls. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tensions rose for years between the Spanish provincial authorities and Dutch city leaders. Dutch urbanization meant that the landed aristocracy had already been largely neutered, with only the House of Orange able to assert influence through its military authority. In 1566, the so-called Calvinist Year of Wonder Heavy-handed Spanish policies and a disruption in the crucial Baltic grain trade led to open violence as mobs in Antwerp carried out a Blidenstrom, or iconoclastic fury. They smashed stained glass and tore down saint statues in a righteous affirmation of the word over the image. Philip refused to recognize any of the Dutch demands and instead sent as viceroy the trusted Habsburg advisor Fernando Alvarez de Toledo, the Duke of Alba, also known as the Iron Duke. The Iron Duke. Get ready for the Iron Duke. The 1567, the thin white Iron Duke, <laughs> viciously suppressed all resistance and instituted a military tribunal called the Council of Troubles. You can just tell from the names that these guys have that this is not, not going well here. Yeah. The Council of Troubles, yep. also known as the Council of Blood, <laughs> which tried over 12,000 people, executed over 1,000, and confiscated the property of most of the rest. The council remained in session for years as Alba instituted a harsh re-Catholization campaign. 
and imposed a 10% excise tax, the hated 10th penny, as they call it. (laughs) Stuff like this, plus Alba's just plain poor sportsmanship, he erected a statue in Antwerp made of melted Dutch cannons that depicted himself trampling the citizens of Antwerp with his horse. Uh, It only served to crowd out moderate voices and ensure that resistance to Spanish rule would be led from the extreme Calvinist religious fringe. Alba is eventually recalled, but it doesn't prevent the emergence of a general Dutch military resistance under the leadership of William of Orange. The House of Orange was the preeminent noble house of the Netherlands, and as such, under huge pressure to give coherence and direction to the incipient rebellion. Even though William took great pains to avoid openly defying what he saw as Philip's rightful sovereign authority. Such great pains were taken that the end of the first stanza of the Dutch national anthem to this day is still, to the king of Spain, I've granted a lifelong loyalty. It's funny that they're still singing that. Yeah, it's like, we, we did not betray you, dude. Yes. You made it. It was, it was your fault. The breach was just too wide to repair, however. And by 1568, William found himself as the acknowledged Stadtholter of the United Provinces, tasked with raising armies in Germany and invading the Low Countries to relieve besieged Protestant cities. It was the beginning of an 80-year war for control of this territory that would anticipate and then join the greater conflagration of the 30 Years' War. I, I think we might get into this more, but I find Dutch history very funny and interesting because it really is, I like to think of it as uh, like the greatest and most uh, consequential like homeowners association exactly. battle of all time because it really like as this goes on it'll keep coming up it's like the, these urban burgers ur- urban, urban burgers, burgers. <laughs> the urban burgers <laughs> urban fervor keep uh, have hold so much of the concentration of wealth and power there and become like globe spanningly important but yeah. they're constantly basically trying to find a king for themselves they're fr- they're trying to f- create some sort of legitimacy institutions right. that they can't do because they're all a bunch of capitalists and this is what this whole story is about and it's seen in microcosm in dutch is they have the new system all geared up and, re- and ready to but go. They don't have a social uh, network, a social reality that can contain, contain it. it. Yes. And uh, that's what the, that's what the England spoiler alert ends up finally providing. Yes. Cap on top and of that's it. where we're going with this whole we're thing. We're going eventually to England. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, but yes, the Dutch are fascinating because early Dutch history is the bringing into self-awareness of uh, the European bourgeois as a class conscious of itself and a class in itself. Right. Like we're seeing that come into being. And you see, like, the psyche come into being. We'll talk about that, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the war was dominated by a series of great sieges rather than a lot of significant battles. Uh, the fearsome Spanish, because remember, it's too expensive now to, to keep armies in the field to do anything other than protect your incredibly expensive fortifications. Right. So it's a series of, strateg- of sieges, one side or the other, of strategic cities in all the riverine, right. crucial nexuses in, these, in this swampy land. Uh, the fearsome Spanish tercios, Military units composed of pikemen, swordsmen, and musketeers that was the most skilled and seasoned professional soldiery in all of Europe, uh, mostly committed to sitting in trenches, attempting to break into city walls and conducting occupation duty. Now, the vibrant Dutch trade network helped pay for the creation of a military machine far out of proportion to the Low Countries population of little over a million. Spain's deeply indebted monarchy had a much harder time paying to keep troops in the field, and their efforts at pacifying local populations was severely hampered by dozens of mutinies that convulsed the king's army in the first stage of the war. 
unpaid troops ransacked cities and helped spread the black legend of Spanish cruelty that became a key theme in Protestant propaganda images and pamphlets in the years to come. And we will see this going for, going forward more and more, the, uh, the cycle of raising an army of mercenaries, running out of money to pay them, and then the mercenaries just going wild and yep. causing more problems. Yep. So Spain, theoretically powerful, is consistently going bankrupt and struggling to maintain control over more heavily Calvinist northern provinces. By 1581, the Dutch rebels had officially rejected the rule of Philip II and start casting around to import another king. They invite the Duke of Anjou, uh, French King Henry III's little brother. And this doesn't work out, so then they invite Elizabeth of England, but she declines, eventually leading to the States General to organize a self-governing Republican body under the leadership of Maurice of Orange, William of Orange's son. Uh, That's after William is assassinated. Oh. Catholics, yes. they really do love assassinating people it during seems, this period. Yeah, it seems uh, very unchristian, you know? It is, it's actually pretty fascinating because you've got this war between the established authority of the Catholic Church and these upstart religious punks, uh, and yet uh, it is the Catholic Church that most thoroughly creates a uh, a volume of theology saying it's okay to kill your rulers if they're unjust. <laughs> Again, just like just keep adding footnotes to the to the Bible, you know? Yeah. Uh, By 1609, Maurice had pushed the Spanish out of what was essentially uh, the modern-day borders of the Netherlands and contained them in Belgium. And so, an independent Dutch Republic of the United Provinces was born. Both sides, exhausted from fighting, the Spanish and the Dutch sign a 12-years truce in 1609, and both go back to planning, rearming, rebuilding defenses, and seeing what comes next. So, attempting to put down the Dutch Rebellion was a massive drain on Spanish resources. But for the Dutch rebels, the necessity of fighting a war against a massive enemy from a distinct numerical disadvantage actually stimulated financial, technological, and military innovation. Mm -hmm. Dutch drill manuals filled European bookstalls as the rebels codified what they had learned fighting the Spanish into a revolutionary new set of military doctrines. The most important Dutch innovations of the era weren't directly military, although it was created to help the war effort. The Dutch East India Company chartered in 1602 to facilitate the international trade networks that sustained the war, became the world's first publicly traded corporation. The company, supported by the Dutch military state and in the face of Spanish blockade attempts, secured the funding to build the ships, establish the colonial outposts, and procure the Indonesian coffee, South African wine, South Asian sugar, and East Asian spices that powered the Dutch trading economy. The war effort built instruments like the Joint Stock Company to facilitate the concentration of capital necessary to go toe-to-toe with the Spanish. In so doing, the de facto independent northern United Provinces of the Netherlands built the most commercialized social and economic order in Europe. This commercial economy wasn't yet capitalism, but it was building the technological, legal, and cultural structures that would be crucial to capitalism's later development. And we were talking about this yesterday. I really can't emphasize enough the monumental importance of 1602 and the 1602 baby creation of the Dutch East India Company as if you are to pick a time when capitalism yes. starts, as, that as, might as, as well be a good enough right, one. As a, uh, as a manifested reality... Uh, at the level of like exchange not yet turned into like a a stable governing structure Mm -hmm. but as a as a business governing structure yes yeah and the dutch east india company will have outposts as far as um 
Nagasaki, yes. I believe. Yes. The only, the, the only Dutch Europeans eventually get the, uh, are given the sole uh, European rights. trade concession by the Japanese because the, the Portuguese keep trying to convert the natives to Catholicism. Yes. Dutch. So, the Dutch are like, hey, man, we're just we're here. here to trade. We're just here to trade. And yes. so they end up being the only ones allowed to trade in Japan for uh, and, decades. And the, this company becomes uh, often said the, the the largest company ever that has ever existed by volume in, yeah. in history. Um, it, another interesting fact I heard recently is uh, by the mid 1600s, they were be doing so much trade that the entirety of the tobacco crop from America was just packed up and sent directly to Amsterdam. Yeah. For distribution. We smoke it good, boys. They're the original Dutch masters. <laughs> it's true. So then it's time to wrap an entire new entity in the mix. The English. Philip II was briefly the king of England and Spain through marriage to Bloody Mary Tudor in the 1550s. Through their Catholic Union, they attempted a violent reversal of the English Reformation, and more on that in a second. But Mary dies in 1558 without children, and Philip loses the crown to the Protestant Elizabeth I. Spanish-English relations remain stable until the 1580s when Elizabeth begins actively aiding the Dutch rebels, sending material support to the Dutch and engaging in open piracy against the Spanish in the English Channel. This leads Philip to create the infamous Spanish Armada. This absolute boondoggle saw Philip sending 130 ships and over 25,000 men from Lisbon with the idea of linking with an army of 30,000 in the Spanish Netherlands to invade England and restore a Catholic monarchy there. However, while attempting to link up with the invasion force in Calais, the English sent several fire ships. These are ships rigged with pitch, tar, gunpowder, and other explosives used as floating bombs into the armada. The Spanish ships spooked and fled and were later repulsed by a small but more maneuverable English fleet at the Battle of Gravelines. The Armada was forced to sail past England and up around Scotland to try to return to Spain, and on the west coast of Ireland, a sudden, unseasonably violent storm, and hey, is it starting to feel colder than usual around this season to anyone? Absolutely demolished the fleet, bashing dozens of the ships into the coast of Ireland and returning the fleet to Spain ruined and unsuccessful. The Armada returned with only half its ships and about a third of its men, even though only a handful of each had been lost in the battle. Where is your God now, Philip? Parenthetically, this has got to be just a huge theological W for the Protestants when this happens. Yes. Literally, God just comes down in the form of the guy from the edge of the map cartoon with like the, the big, puffy ear, big puffy cheeks yep. and blows your ass off the fucking risk board. Yes. That clearly shows whose side he is on. Mm-hmm. And then so, speaking of England, okay, honestly, England is a little in the periphery of our central story as we turn back to Germany next episode, but they'll come back into play towards the end, and that's when we'll give you the full English historical rundown, that is. But we need a little context here just to establish where all the pieces are on the game board of history. As Matt mentioned above, the Plantagenet dynasty had exhausted itself in the Hundred Years' War with France as they're slowly pushed out of the continent by the Valois. They then murder each other over control of the throne in the War of the Roses. But for the purpose of our story, we'll pick up with the House of Tudor. Henry VII Tudor is able to seize control of the crown by defeating the last remaining Yorkists, then marrying Elizabeth of York, consolidating the dynasties. Their son is Henry VIII.
Henry VIII, of course, gives us the English Reformation. Now, this is famously motivated by Henry's horniness or a um, quest for a male heir. Um, you know, and actually, I shouldn't slag him too hard. Evidence is that during his marriages, he was seen as a quite loving and devoted husband. Just when no male heir was produced, the king got kind of over the relationship fast. But the relationship between Henry's need for annulments and his desire to separate England from the papacy are mutually reinforcing. And like the German princes, in England, the Reformation ends up being a tool of dynastic consolidation as much as spiritual reform. Henry, moving in coordination with a series of influential advisors, moves to bring the clergy under control of the crown, confiscate church lands, and bring huge amounts of wealth and authority directly under the power of the English crown. So Matt, what's up with the Tudors in the 16th century? So thanks to the War of the Roses decimation of the high English nobility, the Tudors are able to impose a powerful dynastic state that monopolized for itself many of the bureaucratic and administrative powers that were still firmly held by the aristocracy in places like France. Mm -hmm. So in England, the Reformation is a revolution from above. Henry VIII greatly expanded royal power at the expense of the church and in the face of popular opposition, but left questions of theology largely unaddressed. A tentative move towards a fully reformed church under Henry's son. Yes, he did eventually have one. Yes, uh, but you know he wasn't one of the he wasn't a, a first round draft pick because he <laughs> uh, was a little sickly. Uh, his name was Edward the Sixth, and he hit, this reform project was thwarted by his death at age thirteen. So it's a get get. Yeah, not not really. That's why you want to spare. Yes. So that meant the the uh, crown passed to his uh, daughter Mary Tudor who was uh, fanatically Catholic and married to the uber-Catholic Philip II of Spain, who attempted a bloody re-Catholicization of England that saw hundreds of Protestants burned at the stake. John Fox's famous Book of Martyrs mm -hmm. is about this generation of uh, churchmen who were burned for their uh, adherence to the true faith in the face of uh, the reimposition of satanic Catholicism in the English throne. There's a reason why uh, you can still drink a bloody Mary. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is, is as we said, this is a the Reformation had been from above. And so while it had taken in the cities, it was still something that was considered hostily, if at all, by the greater English population. So it could have been that this project could have been successful if it had had longer to develop, uh, given how lukewarm they had been on Henry's reforms. But Mary died of cancer at 42, well, without issue. So Philip had to fuck back to Spain, and her half-sister, Elizabeth, uh, after some tussling, reclaims the throne, fully committed to a final, thorough reformation of English religion. And the history is the unfolding, as we've said, of material forces punctuated by monumental happenstance. So the English Reformation is is one such case. Mm -hmm. But So what we get is a thoroughly reformed england which is defined by a foreign policy aimed at making england the chief supporter of the protestant cause in europe while building an english church that charted a moderate middle course between residual catholicism and insurgent calvinism like one of the big reasons that the marmada is sicked on england is to stop england's support for the dutch rebels right Elizabeth, head of the Anglican Church, asserted her right to appoint bishops. The city-dwelling Calvinists, derisively called Puritans, mm. uh, demanded a fully reformed church in the Geneva tradition, 
But Elizabeth neutralized resistance by lavishly supporting the Protestant cause on the continent while stoking anti-Catholic hysteria at home. Now, there were many recusant Catholics, especially in the nobility, and fear of Catholic invasion and subversion kept Anglicans and Puritans in uneasy alliance. John Calvin had emphasized predestination so that people would accept their powerlessness before God and bask in his divine grace. The inner peace brought by such contemplations would give believers the strength and will to bring heaven to earth. That's what he thought anyway. Right. Instead, that sense of powerlessness combined with the knowledge that people had of their own sinful hearts created a deep gnawing sense of doubt in these so-called believers. Not doubt in God's existence. That would come later after the scientific revolution. But doubt that a righteous God would save a wretch like them. Ah. There is no longer an institutional architecture that could be trusted to intercede on your behalf. The notion that even earnest Christian believers could be marked for damnation made heaven seem more remote than ever and provoked neurotic fixations on hell, which manifested publicly in a deep fear of Catholic plots and intrigue that would snuff out the flame of righteousness altogether and pitch all of humanity into darkness. And they weren't totally off base. This era does produce Guy Fox, the uh, yep, and, and the, the gunpowder gun plot. plot. Remember, remember the fifth of November. Indeed, uh, the attempt of Catholic conspirators to blow up Parliament on the fifth of November, sixteen o five, which we must always remember, not just for the defining the Catholic Protestant strife of Elizabethan England, but for giving us the mask weird internet activists still use to represent. Well, I don't know, a cool Hugo Weaving movie. I don't know whether to really try to get out there. Okay, expect them. (laughs) Rather than freeing people to do good, Calvinism compelled people out of their unceasing psychic torment to do evil in the name of good. English culture's rabid anti-Catholicism was also stoked by the Tudors' occupation in Ireland. What a coincidence. Where the local population steadfastly held to the Roman church in opposition to their new overlords. Establishing Protestant English and Scottish plantations in Ireland was one element of the Tudor colonial project. The other would be the commercial and religious settlements established in North America, which provided a release valve for the emigration of the Queen's most fervently Puritan subjects who could not peacefully abide a church of bishops and stained glass. (laughs) Free real estate to the rescue and not for the last time. Free real estate. The techniques of colonial administration tested and tried in Ireland and North America would be crucial to the long-term development of British capitalism. So finally, we need to hop across the North Sea and check out the Scandinavian countries, which are on a bit of a back burner in the 16th century, but are gearing up to make a major play on the continent in the 17th. The 1500s were a period of disillusion and reestablishment in the Scandinavians. As the previous Kalmar Union between Denmark, Norway, and Sweden was broken up, and Gustav Vasa of Sweden was able to assert independence in 1523. This left the Union of Denmark, Norway, and then a rising Swedish Baltic Empire, eventually including modern Finland and parts of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, in its realm. Vasa also leads a reformation in Sweden that mostly stems from prolonged arguments over appointments with the Pope. Uh, And really, I found this very funny that, you know, it's like Sweden is just so far from Rome that it's just hard to communicate there and papal influence wanes with the new king's religious prerogative grows. Exactly. I mean, you're going to have to wing it while you wait for the to get the letter back. Yeah, exactly. In Denmark, a dispute among nobles over succession gets resolved with the election of Protestant Christian III to the crown also bringing Reformation to Denmark and to Norway. Uh, Breezing through this here, but the point is we have two developing Protestant commercial empires competing up in Scandinavia, 
Uh, anything you want to add to this, Matt? So we got to remember the, the Baltic trade in grain, timber, and what are called naval stores, the plant derivatives like tar and turpentine necessary for shipbuilding, uh, fueled the rise of commercial or urban culture in Western Europe, right? Mm-hmm. But it also built massive dynastic power in Scandinavia. Now, most of the farming and logging that uh, created these products, the 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 the, 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 beginning, the raw materials, yeah, the, the the actual production of it occurred uh, in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and in the lands of the Rus uh, on huge estates where refutilized serfs produced massive uh, grain surpluses. Or rather, ne- like, never, never really defutilized surfaces. Yeah. It's like the further uh, east you a go, process, the more... It, a process yeah. of desurfification had been arrested and reversed mm-hmm. over the last, like, 100 years. And as a result, they were able to create these huge surpluses and uh, chop down all these trees, make all these barrels of turpentine. And they were able to make big fortunes that, you know, just accrued to their uh, to their noble houses there, Uh but in the in the feudal tradition, mm-hmm. uh, but the sea trading route along the Baltic to the the Low Countries and uh, the British Isles were taxable by whatever power controlled crucial choke points along the way. Right uh, now, during the Middle Ages, the trade had been dominated by the Hanseatic League of Baltic Free Imperial Trading Cities, mm-hmm. one of my favorite uh, groups of all time. There's a lot of great. Leagues in European history. We've talked about one, the Schmalkaldic. Schmalkaldic League. Hanseatic might be my favorite. So this is during the Middle Ages. It was a uh, essentially a diplomatic block mm-hmm. of free cities, both inside the Holy Roman Empire and outside along the Baltic uh, trade routes, mm-hmm. who uh, conducted their own, who had their own uh, storehouses along the way, who were able to travel without having to accede uh, to tolls uh, uh, along the way and uh, were able to negotiate their own prices. Uh, and they they even were able to conduct wars. There were several wars fought between Denmark and the Hanseatic League, where the Hansa uh, hired an old, their own mercenary army, like the Carthaginians. Right. Uh, and their power by now, though, has started to decline. Uh, and since that, that Hansa decline was met by uh, re- the renewed power of the Danish and freshly independent Swedish monarchies, who are now able to lay claim to these lucrative shipping tolls. And this network, Sweden in particular, developed itself into a power capable not only of profiting from taxation of these trade routes, but also by projecting military force into the eastern Baltic territory. Yes. Now, this leads to a cycle of conflict between Sweden, Denmark, Russia, and the Polish Lithuanians that would only be interrupted by the Swedish Sweden's intervention in the Thirty Years' War. So we'll wrap up this episode by returning to Philip II of Spain who died in September 1598 at 71 years old. Through his union with Portugal in 1580, he had commanded an unimaginably vast empire, including Naples and Flanders, Spanish America from northern Mexico to southern Chile, Portuguese Brazil, colonial outposts around the coasts of Africa, Persia, India, Indonesia, the Spanish colonies in the Philippines. At one point, Nagasaki and Japan was under control of Philip II before they kick out the Portuguese for the Dutch. And yet, By the end of his reign, Spain was in decline. Not terminal yet, but the peak had been reached. The Netherlands had slipped out of Spanish rule, and Philip's decades-long designs to re-Catholicize England had come to nothing. Fighting the Ottomans in the Mediterranean, though mostly successful, had been another enormous drain in resources. 
By the 17th century, taxes coming into Spain passed directly onto the creditors without even stopping in the royal treasury. I mentioned that up top. Mm -hmm. And though Philip promoted domestic, intellectual, and artistic pursuits, his fierce pro-Catholic censorship of foreign materials had led to a Spanish elite so devoid of intellectual rigor and curiosity. One ambassador said, Spanish nobles spoke in the manner of blind men describing colors. Oh, burn. That's a horrible burn. In France, Henry IV promulgated the Edict of Nantes. In 1598, though France would remain a Catholic country, broad rights were given to Huguenot religious practices, really more of a tenuous peace than a full settlement. Though independent at the moment, the 12 years truce in the Netherlands had a 12 year expiration point. And remember that conflicts called the 80 years war and they had only been fighting for 40 years. So we'll see what happens when that truce expires. And the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, which had also brought tenuous religious peace to the Holy Roman Empire, was already straining from the exclusion of Calvinists and other sects from its peace. So what do we see in all this as we speed run through the end of the 16th century? I want to return to that image I said at the beginning of episode one, the idea of a gleaming T-800 Terminator skeleton of modern state capitalism rising out of the bloated, rotting corpse of medieval feudalism. And I think that's particularly clear looking at, say, the state of Spain and the Dutch, though powerful, rich, and with the aspiration of becoming the universal monarch who could potentially rule the entire world just a generation before, the Spanish Habsburgs had to contend with a decaying system of stitched together feudal kingdoms, all with their own privileges and obligations and little estates and laws and minor nobilities welded to a financial system that could not turn the literal mountains of gold and silver they were pulling out of the new world into a competent financial machine. Meanwhile, the scrappy little Dutch, just one of those tiny feudal counties, are able to knit together through an ideologically aligned community of merchant individualists, a force capable of overthrowing the Spanish, and a globe-spanning network of financial power that will, within another generation, leave the Spanish in the dust. The world is turning, but this transition hasn't been fully realized yet, and the conflict and internal tensions leave further cataclysms on the horizon. In a Good Friday sermon in 1591, German minister Leonard Breitkopf summarized the general vibe of the turn of the 17th century. Nothing but dread and alarm, devils and specters, sorcerers, witches, prodigies, earthquakes, fiery signs in the heavens, three-headed visions in the clouds, and numerous other signs of God's wrath. And these secret devilish arts are multitudinous, and the whole world is deceived with them. So that it is high time that the day of judgment came. Yikes. Uh, okay, good luck with all that, Padre. <laughs> so, in a Joss Whedon movie, you'd go then go, so that so happened. That happened. It was like, I'm just imagining being like the peasant in the audience be there and just being like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed yeah, like, to do dude, about come this? Come on, man. Yes. I'm just a dude here. Like, I, I've got to concentrate on harvesting all this wheat. Yeah. Around the same time, Finnish villagers reported witnessing a pitched battle in the sky above their small town and found blood pooling in the fields beneath. In 1587, along the Scandinavian coast, herring covered in sigils and writings prophesizing the end of days were pulled from the ocean. Comets and new planets appeared in the night skies. All of this became grist for a cottage industry of pamphlets, broadsheets, and so-called wonder books that catalogued strange celestial and terrestrial goings-on and speculated upon God's intent in sending them. The answer invariably arrived at, the Lord's judgment is at hand. 
Now, it's easy to see why so many Europeans were primed to believe that the world was ending after 50 years of social volatility, exemplified most vividly in cycles of mass bloodshed, from the confessional massacres of the French wars of religion and Dutch revolt to the seemingly endless conflict with the Ottoman Turks and the Balkans and Mediterranean. The uneasy truce that prevailed across the continent by the 1590s was tissue thin. It was well understood that at any moment the peace could be broken and the world plunged into an apocalyptic confrontation. The push into the abyss when it came would not be from the will of man or God, but nature, in the form of a dramatic drop in worldwide temperature that began in the 1590s but rapidly accelerated in the early decades of the 1600s. In 1609, the astrologer Siegfried Forsius came closer than any other contemporary observer to pinpointing the real meaning behind the era's celestial anomalies when he theorized that the sun's rays were losing their warmth. Now, as it happened in the early 1600s, sunspots, the flares of excess solar energy that burst off periodically from the sun, declined drastically in production, reducing the amount of solar energy that reached Earth. A rise in volcanic activity filled the air with sun-deflecting particulates and a series of strong El Nino events pushed cold, wet Pacific air east instead of west during this same period. Now, m many of these effects were natural, but some of the effects may have actually been the result of man's real sins, specifically the sin of the contact between Europe and Mesoamerica. Diseases brought by Europeans killed an estimated 50 million people, or 90% of the population in Mexico and Central America. As a result, 50 million hectares of settled urban and farmland was reclaimed by jungle and transformed into a vast carbon sink. All of this combined to drive down global temperatures 2 degrees Celsius by the middle of the 17th century. That all meant that in the calorie-dense cereal-cultivating regions of Europe, growing seasons declined by at least three weeks Crop yields diminished by over 15%, and the maximum altitude at which crops could be harvested fell by 300 feet. That's to say nothing of the catastrophic crop failures caused by unseasonable snow and rainstorms. In a place where three-quarters of the average person's calories came from cereals, and the cost of food took up half of total household expenditures, the social consequences were catastrophic. All of the dynastic and religious and class conflicts that defined the era were pushed into overdrive by the stress placed on the system by massive reductions in the agricultural inputs the system depended upon. Without any mechanism to reform social structures that were fully controlled by a landed aristocracy that could only respond to collapsing cereal production by squeezing peasants for a larger percentage of their surplus, the only place for the multiplying social miseries to assert themselves was an explosion of multivalent violence, rebellions, witch massacres, and bloodiest of all, mercenary warfare on a continent-wide scale. In short, the very apocalypse that the fearful and trembling believers of Europe had spent so long anticipating. Millions of Europeans experienced the crisis as the fulfillment of every end-time prophecy they had ever entertained, struck down by one of God's four horsemen. At the point of death, be it from starvation, resurgent plague, or a mercenary's blade, these Christians, worthy and unworthy alike, learned God's eternal judgment of their souls. But what about the people left behind? When the convulsions finally ended and the global climate stabilized, Christendom had been smashed. The God worshipped there had departed the earth. The remainder left cursed to live on would be forced to build a new God out of the broken pieces of their now desacralized world. So join us next week as the quest for heaven on earth quite literally goes. 
out the window. written by Matt Chrisman and Chris Wade. It's produced by me, Chris Wade, with editing from our co-producer, Nick Quaz. Show art and animation is from the great Ben Clarkson, and you can find a supplemental interactive atlas for the series by John White over at hellonearth.chapotraphouse.com. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, with additional music by John Ahrens, Alessandro Takeshi, Justin K. Comer, Stale Cooper, and of course, the great Varelli. Join us next week when all these threads finally come together and 30 years of war tumble out of a tower in Prague.